Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. I'd like to welcome you all tonight to this evening's Sydney Ideas and Maclean Museum talk. My name's Jude Philp. I'm curator at the Maclean Museum, one of the three university museums that will in a couple of years be relocated onto the front of the university in the Chow Chuck Wing Museum. Um, in the interim, we have our talks in the Nicholson, or when we have such an amazing speaker like Jackie Troy, then we come and occupy this larger theatre. So thank you all for coming tonight. It's really great to see you. Um, it is my sincere and absolute privilege to acknowledge that we are on Gadigal land this evening, the land of the Eora people and to acknowledge their ancestors, past, present, and all of those who come in the future with that amazing wealth of knowledge from their occupation of this land. It's, it's really, it gives you goosebumps every time you think about mm. that amount of history that this place has. Um, Jackie Troy is, works within the DVC research area. Um, her big project for the university is to work across the whole university, not just in humanities, not just in linguistics, not just in medicine, but for everyone, to really create an Indigenous research strategy that will create this as the leading university for excellence in community-responsive, future-focused research that will make a genuine contribution to the ongoing health and well-being of the amazing group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who make up this nation. Um, so. Um, I'll just also introduce one of the reasons we're having this talk tonight is in celebration of the archive. And um, Nerida and Rebecca, my colleague, um, last year put together a submission to UNESCO to um, give recognition to the memory of the world project that UNESCO hosts of the enormous corpus of archival records and museum objects that were created through the first department of anthropology here at the University of Sydney. The depth of that archive is absolutely incredible and there's a small exhibition um, honouring some of the work of one of the women anthropologists who were some of the first anthropologists trained through that department and who were set to make a difference to understand the whole society through the voices of women. So these archives also contain focus studies of Aboriginal people across Australia who were women, but also whole societies. And it's an amazing legacy to have here at the university. Um, you can make submissions to the archives to visit some of those records and to visit the Maclean Museum um, material by getting in contact with us on the university's website, and please do. They are public records. So without any further ado, Jackie Troy, thank you very much. Thank you all. I think we're now going to get my over. I'm not quite sure if we're over the ground today. here in that um, podium for um, staff here and move across. So I think I'll start over there. And um, thank you very much for that very kind introduction, Jude. I really appreciate it. Um, oh, that's you're saying thing. the amazing Jackie Troy. I don't feel amazing. <laughs> um, in fact, um, I feel that um, what I really would like to do tonight is uh, be more in a sort of discursive um, fashion, I think, state. Um, I have been pondering on my own research experience over the last several years since I've started at Sydney University and been thinking about what kind of research strategy we might have at this university that really does give our communities, as um, Jude said in the statement about why I see myself as being here, give our communities a, a way of thinking about research into the future. And it's a marvellous opportunity to think about what is the contribution or what are the contributions of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women to scholarship in Australia, um, not only about Indigenous matters, but in general, you know, the great um, knowledges, um, our histories, our sciences, the sort of things that women focus on on a daily basis as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I will, of course, acknowledge that we are on the country of the Gadigal people, of the Eora Nation, as people now um, 
talk about themselves. Uh, it's a it's a great thing. It doesn't matter where you go in Sydney now. Somebody can tell you what clan group, what country you're on um, within this city, within this Sydney greater metropolitan area. And I think that that, that is um, coming out of the, if you like, community scholarship as Aboriginal people in Sydney begin to reclaim um, their voice and their histories. I'm a linguist. My doctorate's in linguistics from the Research School of Pacific Studies as it used to be at the Australian National University. I did my first degree here at the University of Sydney in anthropology, but focusing on what we call linguistics anthropology. So I, um, technically the term used to be write t dictionaries and grammars for languages that don't have writing systems. So most of the languages of Australia, one way or another, have fitted into that um, description in the, in, you know, until quite recently. So I've focused on trying to, now I'm focused very much on trying to get our languages going again. And um, in thinking about what I would talk about tonight, I thought what I would do is revisit... <clears throat> oh, whoops. <laughs> no, that's like on video. Actually, that's probably an interesting slide to talk about, so I might bring it back to that. But um, I, I'll start off by explaining who I am as well, um, and also using a little bit of my own language, Nyaya, Nyamijimitong. I am of the Nyamij clan, this is my country, um, the very high country of the Australian Alps. We are the only Alpine Aboriginal people in Australia. This is the Snowy Mountains. My particular clan area is from um, a place called Lobs Hole, which drops about a kilometre down a ravine into a sheltered valley where we could live all year round. And Women in the Archives is a very famous archaeologist, Josephine Flood, who's done a lot of work up in my country um, pretty much the only person who's really done uh, formal archaeological work in my country and she talks about us as the moth hunters because we were the people who used to harvest each year the bogong moths and um, feast on them and share them with our surrounding communities. So to eat a bogong moth you have to toast it, knock all the dust and fluff off and the wings and everything else and then you can grind it into a paste and make it into a cake, or you can just eat it as it is. But um, very high protein, quite delicious, and I noticed that Sydney Uni is focusing on getting people to eat things like crickets and all sorts of other things at the moment. So um, we were way ahead of it. We were right on the, where do you get alternative protein from? It doesn't have to be from cows, so cattle. Um, so that's my beautiful country. Um, and um, so as a young scholar here at Sydney Uni, I was um, horrified that actually, uh, you know, if you look at this map, this is the sort of density of languages in this country. That's only a little bit of the density because when I was a scholar beginning here in 1980, um, the wisdom was that um, there were about 250 languages in this country. Now the wisdom is there are more than 400 and um, that's because there's a wonderful project to do a, what we call subgrouping piece to look at our, the relationships between all our languages. And as that subgrouping is happening, more languages are appearing to be separately defined. So we have a lot of linguistic and cultural diversity. Why are there 400 or more languages in this country? 400 or more different nations. So um, that's a lot of social differentiation. And we women have a very strong role in that too. Um, unfortunately, the anthropology in this country still tends to privilege, I guess, the male point of view. You know, when you think, I, I can guarantee that most people, when they think Aboriginal, um, and they, you know, people coming from outside Australia too, would think an Aboriginal man who looks like someone from the centre of Australia. Um, a Walpuri man, most particularly, because the, one of the first icons of Aboriginal Australia used publicly on a stamp uh, was a Walpuri man holding a spear, standing on one leg, and yeah, that's Aboriginal Australia. So I guess I, I first, when I came here, uh, thought to myself, well, where is the voice of women? This is, you know, post-1970s um, feminism. Um, I was um, in that vein myself. I was a feminist, young feminist, and very up and snorty, and I was um, a young Aboriginal person who was um, really struggling to find my own place within, I guess, the rhetoric of the academy. 
So there are all sorts of books about the Aborigines. And when I read my early writing myself, I talk about the Aborigines. But I can see myself trying to sort of position, whoops, where I am. Well, this is where I ended up. So I, um, I, st I started out um, particularly wondering what had happened to the language in the Sydney area. And I, 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 was, I, I was raised in this part of uh, Australia. And um, I was led in the direction of a wonderful set of notebooks that are actually named after a man, William Dawes. And I have a picture of him, very handsome young man, handsome young English man. This is William, Lieutenant William Dawes, um, who came to Australia with the first fleet in 1788. And he was um, in his very early 20s, already multilingual, spoke probably about 12 languages, including he'd seen action, as they say, in the Americas and in India. So he'd been exposed to indigenous languages in both those parts of the world, spoke multiple European languages, and fortunately for me had been um, schooled in ancient Greek and Latin. So he had a very good base for looking at the languages of Australia. Um, because our languages are similar in some ways to ancient Greek. So when he started writing the language down, he sort of modelled what he was writing on ancient Greek, which gave me a way of um, analysing the languages, so back to my dictionary writing, etc. Uh, but he could not have done this work without a wonderful, wonderful Aboriginal woman, a Gadigal woman, Bachigarang. Now, as far as I know, there aren't any images of Bachigarang, but who cares, because here is a fabulous image of Bajigarang, um, created by Jasmine Shepherd, who is a dancer with Bangara. And the Bangara Dance Theatre, um, very recently, actually in the last couple of years, put on a performance. It was the first time they'd really done something about the Sydney area. And it was in honour of this wonderful young woman, Bajigarang, who was probably, well, she was certainly an adolescent when she met um, William Dawes. He, she taught him the language, but we don't talk about the Bachigarang manuscripts, we talk about the Dawes manuscripts. Um, and indeed, the other people who wrote these little notebooks about the language of Sydney, um, held, now held in the School of Oriental African Studies and written between about 1790 and 1791. Um, there were other First Fleet officers who contributed to them as well. But in addition to Bachigarang, there was also um, a young woman called Aburu, who um, even before um, Bachigarang was uh, working with William Dawes to teach him her language, Aburu, who was a, an orphan as a result of the, a plague that went through Sydney. So in the very um, first three years of invasion of this country by the British, many, many hundreds, possibly, possibly thousand or more Aboriginal people died from something that was it's often called smallpox, but it's unlikely it was smallpox, but it was that kind of hideous um, pustulous, as they described it in the, um, the uh, First Fleet Diaries, um, disease. So people, um, so many people died that Aboriginal people couldn't keep up with um, going through funeral rites. There were bodies stacked in caves out of the way to um, you know, keep people from getting further um, sicknesses. And there were many children who were orphaned in this um, crisis and one of them um, lived with the First Fleet officers and started to teach people her language. So, in fact, the very first um, linguistic work done in Australia on Australian languages was really done by Aboriginal women, but recorded by non-Aboriginal men and held in these little notebooks. So, um, I guess my first delve into the archives of um, I guess our ancient history, in a, a modern sense, post-invasion history, was to engage with Aboriginal women. But I, um, I, I, wrote, I was really, as I said, in this kind of feminist mode. And um, a woman called Anne Powells, when I was an undergraduate in the early 80s, was writing the first book about, um, it was called Women and Gender in, um, what was it? Women and Language in Australia and New Zealand society. So I uh, was asked to write a piece because I was saying that in, what I was just telling all of you, that in fact Aboriginal women seem to be the people who contributed to the first documents and the initial learning of, of um, their languages by people who weren't 
Aboriginal. So the first sort of communication that was happening in this country was really being um, driven along by Aboriginal women and young Aboriginal women. Um, and that there's a good reason for that because senior Aboriginal men, um, it's very difficult for them to actually speak directly to or engage with people who aren't initiated, aren't at their sort of level of knowledge. So uh, while we are not a hierarchical people in the sense of having kings and queens and dukes and earls and all these other sort of, um, if you like, class structures, we do in Aboriginal Australia um, have this sort of um, acknowledgement of people having very senior levels of knowledge and you just don't w walk up to somebody who's a senior knowledge holder and ask them questions or engage with them. There's a whole protocol around it. So younger people, you know, adolescents um, who are sort of just becoming adults, beginning their, their life as um, senior people, are much more flexible and, and young women particularly were able to um, face um, other women and um, also men and describe their language and share their knowledge. So I was particularly interested in the kind of language mixing that started happening, the development of what we call, what I ended up calling a New South Wales pigeon. Those of you who know Australian languages would know that we have um, Creole languages across this country. So out of a, a pigeon language, which is a sort of mixed language that develops out of this sort of communication, so if you've got more than one language in an area, as we did in Sydney, something that's not well known is that actually most of the first convicts that came to Australia didn't really speak English. They were mostly Irish, and they were many of them Irish-speaking. And if they spoke English, it was their you know, second or third language. So, so in this colony, we had English-speaking people sort of running the place, if you like, from a colonial point of view. Um, Aboriginal people who spoke a language of the Sydney area. So the Sydney language itself, I've got a little um, map. Where is my map? Um, the Sydney language was spoken in what we now call the Sydney Basin, um, bounded by these rivers. And often when you hear Aboriginal people giving um, acknowledgements or welcomes to country, they'll talk about you know the Cooks River, the Hawkesbury River and the Georges River. Um, Broken Bay and Botany Bay as sort of boundaries. These are natural boundaries that you'd expect. So there was one, while there was one language in this area, there were lots and lots of clan groups. And so that's why you'll hear the language talked about as Gadigal here, because if you're Gadigal, it's your language, Gadigal. Out in Western Sydney, it's um, Bubarongal, or um, people talk about it being Daruk. So there are all kinds of language names, but it appears there was one language in this area. So there's an, but, but all around this language, there are many other Aboriginal languages, so people coming into the colony. And as people um, attempted to communicate with each other, you go through this phase of sort of, you know, a bit of like you do when you travel internationally and you're starting to pick up a bit of a language, you start sort of sharing. And gradually that stabilises and then you end up with a, ultimately you can get a, um, what we call a Creole language where a sort of pigeon mix becomes something that kids grow up speaking as their first language. So uh, into this mix, you had people teaching each other their languages as well. So Sydney was always multicultural, dynamic, and a place where women had a very strong role in um, supporting cross-cultural communication. So I was um, pretty interested in how Aboriginal women contributed, because again, when you start reading the histories and, and looking at the language texts, it looks like it's all a male effort. And um, I think one of my first um, comments in this little chapter that I wrote, this first book on language and gender in Australia and New Zealand was, and I'll quote, it's uh, marvellous reading your old publications. I mean, this is now nearly 30 years ago. It's so sort of of that period. I now, I now have my own historical material to look at to think, wow, is this, this is how people used to write about Aboriginal people. But, anyway, but, but it's interesting because, as I said, my own voice as a woman and as an Aboriginal person comes through. And my, my, the fact that I was interested in what Aboriginal women had to say um, was actually quite unusual at that time. Um, so I started this article with a quote from um, a wonderful woman who became, I have to say, all these women become my friends. Um, all these people I discover as I do my research, the more you get to know them, the more they flesh out as real people. And Biddy of Maitland is someone I have always thought I will go back and really investigate her history. 
what a character. So there's a little picture of her in a carte de visite, which is a kind of 19th century, early 20th century visiting card, a little um, very staged picture of that time. And under her image it says, and I couldn't find the image, I apologise, I must find it again, because she was really an early heroine for me. Stop, Missa. When me, young girl, plenty white man, kiss me. And I thought to myself, now here's a character, um, Biddy. And later on she was describing herself as a Roman candlestick which is a Roman Catholic, and I thought, this woman. So, so what I thought to myself, apart from what a marvellous sense of humour, and that comes through with Bajigarang and her interactions with William Dawes as well, and I'll get to her, but um, was that Biddy was speaking this kind of um, mixed language. So she was my way into New South Wales pigeon. And so I, I actually, all my research really then, and then into um, reconstructing the language of Sydney, has been guided along by Aboriginal women. And um, I actually said here, it was this sentence which first inspired me to search for evidence of contact languages in New South Wales, so these sort of mixed languages that developed out of um, language contact between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. And um, I love this piece. <laughs> Those few words of New South Wales pigeons, sorry, I feel funny quoting myself, but. Um, embody the major concerns of this heuristic paper. I think can spot the early career academic. Um, the role of Aboriginal women in the development of contact languages and their role in social relations between Aborigine, Aborigines and colonists in the late 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries, which facilitated that development. And then I go on. Worldwide, the role of women in the development of contact languages has generally been neglected in the studies of pidgin and creole languages because there has been a concentration on male speakers by male investigators. And I think it's poignant, you know, that this exhibition that um, Jude talked about by Phyllis Caver about Phyllis Cavery is on at the moment because um, when I was a young you know, student of anthropology and particularly the sort of linguistics anthropology, there were a very few um, women who were leaders in um, anthropology and they struggle to be listened to and a lot of these people um, who've gone on to be great names in Australian scholarship these are none of them are Aboriginal but um, Faye Gale you know um, Phyllis Cabery um, I was thinking about um, Isabel White um, Isabel McBride I don't know if any of you well I think this is an audience that's familiar with Australian anthropology one way or another but these are people who looked at the archaeological record, I said, Josephine Flood and others. Um, in fact, I, I look around the audience and I see my colleague Linda Barwick. I'm sure you'd, you know, think back to, you know, it, it was a struggle to get what, what, what women have to say, whether you're Aboriginal or not, actually listened to and taken seriously. So a lot of the record even now is still that kind of um, posturing, I guess, of a sort of a male point of view. So. Um, one of the things I would say is that we have this fabulous collection um, here at Sydney University of, um, through our museums and Jude and I were talking about, you know, let's look at ways in which we can sort of start teasing out um, other voices, other perspectives and particularly if we're looking for um, something that's a futuristic view for um, thinking about what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want. Um, researched into the future, we should start looking at what, what these archives can actually offer that provides another perspective, and particularly a, a female perspective. So, um, and I went on to talk about um, Abaru, an Aboriginal girl growing up in a colonial home. So she was this young woman I just mentioned who was um, a victim of the um, smallpox plague, as it was called, I'll, I'll call it that, but it, it can't have been because smallpox would never have survived the journey, so it was something similar. But um, She was a 13-year-old girl, probably from Sydney or Botany Bay, and a speaker of the languages local to the area. Um, what contends, she was one of the First Fleet officers, wrote that she was received as an inmate with great kindness in the family of Mrs Johnson, the clergyman's wife. Um, and while um, in the care of the Johnsons, Abaru was, um, was basically started to learn English. And she started to share her own language as well. 
And I, I wrote that her role in cross-cultural communication was very important, at least for the Johnsons, you know, and these were very influential people in the colony as well. Mrs Johnson was so pleased with um, learning something about the language of Sydney that um, she christened her little girl who was born in Port Jackson, Milba Maria Johnson. Milba being um, an Aboriginal, a word from the local language. Um, I think if I remember correctly, I haven't written it here, but I think it was a, a bird name and that uh, a sort of onomatopoeic bird name. Um, so, you know, Mrs Johnson and Abaru were starting to, um, you know, share this language knowledge and Abaru sort of disappears a little bit into the record after a while. And then we pick up with um, William Dawes, who really took on um, the role of becoming the, the person who studied the language of Sydney. He was the most um, adept, if you like, out of all the First Fleet officers. Philip arrived actually with instructions to conciliate the natives and learn their language. Uh, learn their language so that you could conciliate them even more, being um, to let them know that it was just fantastic. The British have arrived. You're moving into the modern era. It's all good. So, um, and um, so William Dawes um, developed a very close uh, relationship uh, with this young woman, Budgie. I, I, again, this is early scholarship on my part. And I, I was obviously quite intrigued with what kind of relationship. And um, I, I made much of the fact that um, although Budgie might have spent time in William Dawes's hut, um, it doesn't necessarily imply any physical intimacy because <laughs> Dawes shared the dwelling with several other officers, like that would ever stop anyone. And I was living in college at the time. But anyway. um, so um, accommodation in early Sydney being at a premium. Um, but I also said, furthermore, he was strongly influenced by the evangelical ideas of John Thornton, who proposed the domestic experiment. Thornton's experiment aimed to provide salvation for non-Christian, uncivilised people by installing them in the homes of civilised people where they could be exposed to enlightenment. And there was certainly a lot of that thinking in early Sydney in that sort of very early um, period of the colonial experiment in this country. Um, so followers of his ideas believe that by taking people into their homes, especially children, and educating them on the assumption that they weren't already educated in their own societies, I've put in brackets, <laughs> they could turn those people into highly successful participators in civilised society. So I, I thought it was very likely that Dawes was um, following Thornton's idea and having Patty living with him rather than developing a relationship of concubinage with her. Well, I don't know what um, Dawes thought, but Patty obviously thought the whole thing was a hilarious um, engagement. And um, he used to do things like um, say to her, you need to put some clothes on. You can't stand in front of the fire like that. You know, that it's just not, that's not, a, obviously it's part of this sort of evangelical Christian thinking and educating. And she just, no, no, I'm staying here like this because if I put my clothes on, I'm not gonna dry off and I won't get warm. So just, you know, take your evangelical ideas and keep them to yourself, that's all good. But then there's all these other wonderful tender moments between William Dawes. So I, I love this because here's this young woman, this voice coming out of the archive of her educating William Dawes, you know, like, look, you uptight evangelical Christian you know, Englishman. <laughs> um, actually, we do things differently here. And um, I, I, just, I just love the interactions. So there's, it moves on to a point where um, William Dawes writes down, you know, if um, a, a word "budua," which actually we're using at Sydney now to sort of talk about creating culturally safe spaces, which is a nice a nice thing to think of. But she, Patigarang, um, taught him that there's this one word where you warm your hands in front of a fire, and then you take someone else's hands in your hands and you warm their hands. You know, this sort of tender moment of thank you very much for all your you know, uptight English stuff, but let's just be human here. So I, I see, and this humanity goes all the way through these, I'm going to call them the Bajagarang manuscripts from now on, actually, I think. So um, So, so that, was, that was my sort of foray into developing an understanding of the language of Sydney and thinking through, thanks to Biddy of Maitland, what the um, relationships were between people as they acquired each other's languages. 
And then um, sometime later I had an opportunity to work in the National Museum of Australia as an assistant curator. And I was given the job of um, <laughs> writing a piece about um, king plates. I should have put a picture, but a book about king plates. So these are things that um, were, um, I think, I think most people would know one way or another what these are like. They're quite, they're very popular sort of popular culture um, objects now in museums and elsewhere. Basically, they were objects given to Aboriginal and Torres Strait, or Aboriginal people, I don't think it ever made it to the Torres Strait, but Aboriginal people from Macquarie's era on, Governor Macquarie and sort of the late 18-teens um, instituted this idea that you would give somebody, um, whoops, Sorry, I'm very good at banging my cards. Um, as a, a plate with written on it, king or queen, and later on there were plates, um, sort of crescent-shaped um, neck plates that um, were for people who had done something fabulous, like rescue someone from a river, or you know, so they became memorials, um, more memorial plates as well. But um, these king plates were um, a sort of a, a ticket in many ways for the Aboriginal people that were given them um, for, if you like, favours within the colony. And it was back to my point about us not being hierarchical. The British were really struggling with, right, who do... OK, so who do I talk to? Does this sound familiar? The Australian government. Now, which... Who is your... Who take us to your leader? You know, even even in our ethics clearance processes. Sorry, I, I do. I, I'm so I so I'm such a strong believer in in um, having ethics protocols and ethics processes. But they all say now, which can you get a letter from the community, the community, the people, the person, whatever. Um, but we, we 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 are collective people. You know, we are people who come to agreements together, and it wasn't different then. So there's king plates actually became, they were, they were sort of a, I think in some ways, um, a poison chalice for the people who had them. And they've been disputed ever since about whether it meant people had sold out and set themselves up as the important people or not. A number of them were given to um, women. So Benelong, um, everybody knows Benelong, <laughs> very famous Aboriginal man from early Sydney had a king plate, um, Macquarie gave him one. There was um, uh, Cora Gooseberry. Oh, sorry, Bungaree, not Benoit. Bungaree, sorry. This is Bungaree. Bungaree. And in his beautiful red coat. I shouldn't have really put this up here, sorry. And um, he's also got this sort of red suit coat. Those gorgettes are actually the last vestige of medieval armour. They're the gorge or the neck plate. And the British um, Marines, the officers, would wear them when they were on duty. Incidentally, the SS um, used to wear them when they were on duty in World War II, so they really are a very odd thing, these gorge plates. Anyway, through that piece of research and sort of thinking through what these things meant, I met another wonderful woman, <laughs> and this is um, Gumi Nalana, who's actually a woman from not far from my own country, from Murramurang, um, on the south coast of New South Wales. She was um, a woman who had a lot of cultural knowledge. Um, she really was, you know, actually some of these people who were given king and queen plates were, um, in a sense, well chosen. They were people who knew what they were talking about. They were initiated people, not only initiated, but they were, they were knowledge holders. They were often people who were the last people who were able to really talk with great authority about um, cultural practices in their area, which is sad. And in fact, this woman, um, she got a plate, Kumi got a plate for being the last of her tribe. I mean, how, how, how poignant is that, you know? Um, and um, so the last living member of her tribe. And she wrote, and it, it's not true, of course, there are descendants of, of these people still, we still exist, we're still here. And there are still lots of people on the south coast. So again, this is, it's interesting going back over this material. I, I didn't at the time say, yes, this woman's the last of the tribe, far, far from it. But her own perception was that she was kind of a last person. She, she said, um, she was recorded as saying, where my people, where? And then she paused, dead, all dead. Gumi soon died too, then all gone. Why my people die? What for you want to know? 
meant to tell you a long time ago, I had me a little piccaninny, and actually this is probably not far off the way she spoke, this kind of contact language at the time. So, Blendy Blackfellas sit down, long a big tramp. They meet native food or sound like old, wild, mild fella. So wild being um, our word for people who not are, in, are not in a settlement. In fat, what you call big, strong, him, skinny, shiny, native food is very good. You white fella come along, sit down, black fella, he tried libid. All the same white fella, wear him clothes, eat white man tucker, drink white fella grog. All time he get him. You're laying about camp, no climbing the tree for possum. Him skin get hard, what you call dry up and get plenty sick. Tumble down, soon die. Grog kill him very quick, very soon all die. Me see him never no more. So how can you not engage with someone like this? You know, what, more, more. We need more about these women. So they, they sort of pop up with their points of view. But, you know, in, indeed it tends to be people like Benelong. You know, everybody knows about Benelong. In Sydney, we're beginning to know about people like Barangaroo because people there's now this Barangaroo precinct in Sydney. So these women are starting to pop out of the archive again and um, take their place and have their say. Uh, but there's so much more in there and so much that we could understand about Australia um, as it is now and as it will be into the future um, by listening to these women in the archives. Um, I'm going to actually stop at this point and ask anybody for questions, comments, um, ideas, and I encourage you into our fabulous collections. Um, and I'm happy to come along with you. <laughs> so, thank you. Hi, Jeremy Salveson. I'm interested in hearing you mentioned a couple of voices, and in terms of um, Aboriginal women, Ab Aboriginal people from those early contact years, you highlighted a couple of um, mentions of disease mm -hmm. um, causing such an impact, and, um, and then also the impact of white colour tucker and grog, etc. Yeah. Can you talk about what the voices that you've read back through, what's been recorded, obviously, and all the layers in that. Yeah, yeah. What did they talk about the meeting uh, between the um, different fields? Yeah, sure. Well, actually, one of the images I um, would like to show, I have a few more on here, um, is this woman, Gilligrant. Um, I don't know terribly much about her, but there are quite a few Aboriginal women um, illustrated. And when I was trying to understand the the, the, if you like the language in the Bajikaran notebooks, <laughs> um, William Dawes notebooks, um, I, there, is a whole lot of, there are a whole lot of artefacts that are talked about. And um, in looking at what these artefact names were, it actually made me look at um, what were the people doing with them. And of course, if you look at this woman, so this woman, I, I haven't got a recorded um, comment from her, but that image of her is its comment is a comment in itself. Here is a complete socio-economic unit, right? Um, that woman's got her fishing line that she's made herself, um, no doubt, um, and probably the fish hook as well. Incidentally, people use stone fish hooks also to catch great big groper. You sort of drop it into the fish's mouth, choke them out. Apparently, um, she's got her um, water carrier, little um, basket on the other side. She's got this beautiful net bag that she would have made all the um, twine for as well as making the bag itself. Other people may have made it for her, but people, everybody had these skills. Women had um, great skills. Um, and she's off to Coles there to um, get all her, um, you know, and she's, she's been to Coles, but she's continuing. She's got all this um, real food. So exactly as Kumi said, she's... Um, She's not a very young woman, not a particularly old woman, um, but she's, you know, fit, healthy, eating off the land. Um, every day she does what all the little signs around the university say, get up and walk instead of sitting at your desk. So, you know, living this lifestyle. So, again, if you look into the archives and not only look at text, but look at these images as text. So. There, there is a, there is a lot. There are a lot of images of women, and there are a lot of artifacts that are actually female artifacts. 
Um, and so I guess what I'm saying here is that, um, and there are images also from the first fleet period of women healing people. And one of the things women did was um, to, as a, as a team, if someone was very ill, they'd put their hands on someone's body and, um, you know, there would be music, there'd be chant, there'd be some kind of um, sound going along with it. And they would also get a piece of twine and rub their gums till they bled. And it, would, it was sort of to sort, you know, to draw out the poison, the illness. Um, so, you know, it, great, a great deal of caring. So however you read this, um, these people were people who had um, very typical of Indigenous communities worldwide, as I observe, um, great attention to each other and how each, other, how each person felt, lots of engagement. Everybody had a place, everyone had a job, and all of that, that does come through. And a lot of that comes through in these images of women, what women are doing, what women are saying. So tragically, women don't get documented in text so much because people, men particularly, were not interested, unfortunately, in what women had to say. But they did create these sort of pictures. So, um, and also talk about the kind of things that women would do. So there's a lot of a lot about collecting and gathering. And I mean, basically, most of the food every day is collected by women and children in a, uh, I guess, a, a bush tucker type of lifestyle. Um, and then men would get very involved in um, hunting big game. And in fact, I've got a project. Um, here um, with a colleague of mine. This is Sydney University looking up the hill past where the site of the, univer of the university's in museum is going to be. This used to be a kangaroo ground. And it's interesting because I suspect that this kind of big sweep was left like that because it's part of that original area that was open country. So um, this is a men's domain, if you like. This is men hunting kangaroo, wallaby, um, and women would be, um, you know, collecting um, the food to have a feast around a big kangaroo hunt. So one of the things we can do is go into archives and consider what kinds of um, lifestyles people had through looking at these objects and the images. So that's one kind of answer. Is that OK? Yeah. I'm wondering if we could um, surmise that the women were actually Sorry, I didn't quite. That women were gardening. I thought you said gardening. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm very interested in the idea that there was much more cultivation. Yeah. Certainly, look, the point about um, people, um, and I think you're probably right, it, it would, would have been um, typically the sort of thing that women did, um, is cultivating, um, in this area, particularly in Sydney, there's a tiny little yam, and it's um, called the dara, which is the same word for the eye, is that your eye tooth? <laughs> yeah, the eye tooth, the, the canine, canine tooth, it looks like that. And it's the same sort of shape, a little sort of pointy. It's described in the record as that. And you can still find it all over Sydney. And it's a sort of um, like an oxalis sort of bulb. And it's a, a very typical um, cultivar of the Sydney area and that Aboriginal people did. Cult did. So there's, there are records from the very early period of people going, no, 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 don't trample all over that, you know, like, well, the first fleet officers are sort of putting up their tents. And actually, there were a lot of tents, so a lot of, the first, a lot of the first buildings were quite temporary, but they were put down on, well, where would you put it? A nice soft flat bed of uncultivated tiny little yams would be, you know, so, um, and along riverbanks, you know, and I think in that film, the series, The Secret River, um, by Kate, the, based on Kate Grenville's book about it, there was um, a, a scene in that particular um, series where people did come along and dig up a yam bed. So, um, 
at the very least, there was that going on. And then if you look at Bill Gandage's work about the greatest estate on earth, but can I say Bruce Pascoe's wonderful Dark Emu, if no one's read that, um, in this, read it. It's a wonderful book about us as agriculturalists and fish farmers and, you know, generally... Um, and he posits that this kind of, this kind of space you see here was... Um, I mean, this is very much, um, I guess, modified, but it's still possibly similar to what um, the area was like originally, where you've got an open tract where kangaroo would graze, and then um, sort of shrubbery and trees along the side that kangaroo would want to shelter in or sleep underneath. And um, so this area was very consciously created. And um, women certainly would have had a role in um, creating these um, cultivars and, and possibly even you know, um, over the, over, I mean, if we've had tens of thousands of years in this um, country here, uh, why wouldn't people also modify crops, you know, discover that if you, you know, breed a particular type of yam in this area, it will grow stronger and better and then use that one and plant it elsewhere. So I think that's a very good point. But it needs to be teased out. We need to find this out from the archive, archives and museum collections and, and galleries, you know, so. Um, do you have any um, material um, at any period about Callum Park in Roselle? Callum Park? Yeah, um, so there's Sydney College of the Arts. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, that has a very uh, substantial history. And yeah. I also believe that Fairway did have a burial ground. Yeah, yeah. And of course, anywhere that people um, gathered and ate, yeah. Um, and created um, what we call middens, you know, um, people used as burial grounds. So, um, and because people move move on and then move back, you can do that. So, um, if the, you know, once a, a midden has got to a certain point and you can bury um, people within it, well, you'll move on to another area, but you can come back to that area later. So, it's... Um, any of these sort of particularly areas where there's a good water source, um, you know, these sort of cultivars like the yams can grow, they're, they're, they're interesting sites from a, an agricultural point of view. Don't I don't specifically know about that area, but there is, so mu there is actually so much just in the State Library of New South Wales and the, um, you know, the historic collections there that has barely been tapped into, and certainly not with you know, well, what did women do? Um, so that's a, a good question, yeah, yeah. that particular site. current one, given yeah. the preservation of that place and yeah. the risks to that site. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyone interested yeah. in finding that history? I think, find it now. I think it's, it's on a bit of an escarpment area, isn't it? It's got that drop down, so again, you know, that, yeah. Thanks very much, Kathy. Oh, great, great talk. Um, I'm interested in... Um, to hear a bit more about um, what you said about women being involved in cross-cultural um, being sort of specialists in dealing with outsiders, so to speak. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I just wanted to find out a bit more, you know, what we know about whether the sort of actual minimal sort of estate management went on in this area as well, because I'm aware that um, you know women often marry outside their group, mm. and whether that's how um, how some of these sort of skills might have got developed. Yes, that's right, and I, I think yeah, I think it fundamentally comes down to the fact that women are less. Um, I'm searching for the word, but they're less of a threat. Um, so. Um, and are expected to be more, um, I guess, adaptable across groups and in these sort of cross-cultural engagements. So um, you're quite right. That's the same same kind of pattern down in this area here. Um, and and women have the, the problem we've got is that the uh, the, the the description of how uh, it was to be an Aboriginal woman um, in this sort of I guess the earliest period of of our historical, you know, written documentation created by people who've come into this country is not, it's just not really investigated very well. Even myself, as I said, I um, uh, have sort of looked at 
I, I realise that actually the only way, I, the only reason I can do um, linguistic research, whether it's on a contact language or a, um, a vernacular language, if you like, um, like the language of Sydney, um, Gadigal, um, is because Aboriginal women were the ones providing the information, mostly. And in fact, um, in the Dawes manuscripts, there doesn't really appear to be very much contributed by Aboriginal men at all. So that's quite telling. But those are women from this group here. They're, pre, they're probably not married. I don't think Wabachigarang would have been a married woman. She was, um, she may, have been, she would have been promised. To, you know, she'd have somebody that she was associated with. But she was, she was more, um, I guess, free to have this sort of engagement. So, and um, if you look at the kind of leadership that happens um, now in our communities in southeastern Australia. It, often it's the women setting up the health services and the legal, even the legal services. Um, the um, certainly all the a lot of the education, the AECG, for example, the education groups, um, Aboriginal education consultative group. A lot of it is leadership from women. There are some very significant men in these organisations. Don't get me wrong, but it tends to still be that the women take the the front role and the men take the back role, which is a kind of classical pattern. And so the men, uh, and even um, in my own country in the Snowy Mountains, there's this um, understanding that there were women who were called Baginge women who actually um, had a major role in carrying out law, but it was um, ultimately the men from a sort of back foot, um, a, back, a back position, um, as you say, the main um, the main managerial position for community, um, who sort of set what was going to happen, what was going, to, and that's. Uh, it could be why we end up with this very skewed record as well. That it's, it looks like it looks like in the historical record there are only men in um, Aboriginal Australia. If you look at the um, colonial records, there's, but in fact, when you just scratch under the surface, it's uh, it's it's the voice of women that is actually informing what people know and think. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, again, p partial answer perhaps. I, we, don't, we don't know, this is the problem, yeah. So. Hi, yeah, thanks. Great. Um, Kate Brindle was researching in the Yes. Um, the diagram, the research <laughs> you were doing, you know. I spoke to Kate actually. Um, she, you know, she wrote *The Lieutenant* as a novel, so um, based on with good historical um, base. But I think um, there's more of a, a kind of a love story in that um, book. But um, again, I, it, it's interesting when I look back over my own writing, with, with only fairly recently again thinking about what I thought about it all. Um, it's interesting to look at things in this historical this historical context. Um, I think her book gives it a more modern kind of relationship flavour for me. Um, I guess it's for a more popularist audience now. But um, it, it, the the yeah human what were human relationships? It, this goes in some senses to Linda's question as well. What were the relationships between Aboriginal men and Aboriginal women? And it's not unless you think okay. How, do, how did the First Fleeters know this? Well, most of the time they know this, whatever this is, about the country in this area because they've talked to women. So clearly women were able to talk to outsiders um, and to men. And then, um, so there's, it's, uh, you know, it, I think it's worth considering what, what human relationships were um, at that time, but also trying to reconstruct something of how it was to be Aboriginal at that time. You know, why is it that these women are the ones, it's actually their voices that are informing these men who then report the histories. And that goes right through the 19th century um, and well into this century too. And um, even now, I think there's still, there's still a bias in anthropology towards um, a male point of view. Um, Please tell me I'm wrong, but I, I think that's pretty much how it is. So, yeah. I just want to say a very big thank you for your talk and to tell you that I lived uh, from my early childhood in a part of South Australia, 
where uh, no one had lived between the Aborigines and my family who took up the property. And so we were very interested to find there the skulls of uh, kangaroos that had obviously, uh, it had obviously been a meeting ground. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say an extra big thank you to you and uh, I hope you did very well. Oh, thank you. That's right. <laughs> Yes, that's a really good question. Um, uh, look, I think um, my my own scholarship now is actually starting to reflect a lot more on on who and what I am and where I've come from, and um, and what's happened to my own people. It's a kind of shocking thought. Um, when I was reading about Kumi Nalana, Nalami Nalana, I'd, I hadn't thought. Well, what about the Yamich mob, um, or even the Naragu, as we sort of call it in a more broad way. Um, and um, it's fascinating to me how my own community is sort of now, if you like, coming coming forward again. A whole group of people who are from Lobs Hole, which is, let me tell you, not a big place. And um, um, I think all the families there, um, black or white, are related. And, there were very few Aboriginal people. I mean, our groups were fairly small groups anyway, um, according to according to the archaeological record, but also family history. And even looking at the patterns now, intensely family-oriented, small groups of maybe 40 or so people, not big groups. Um, and in a place like Lobs Hole, which is a nice sheltered area, maybe um, more of a, a, a sort of a, a group clan area, I'm not sure. But that, that, that's fascinating me, you know, um, I the Aboriginal, what, what am I, who am I, how do I express my own identity and going back over this story, look, you know, from Bajigarang on, she was sort of being rubbed out of the record, here's this woman who's so significant, we wouldn't have the record of the language of the Sydney area if it wasn't for her and, um, you know, Avaru, who's just even more disappeared, if you like, so... Um, I, I, I guess I see myself as someone using the tools of an academy like this and my own scholarly practice that I, I value, I really do value, but um, just never give up on being Aboriginal. And I, I clearly, I've, I've even got a, a textbook of mine from um, when I was, I was at North Sydney Girls High, <laughs> at the beginning of my high school, which was just as snooty as it is now, I guess. Um, and then I was at the Women's College at Sydney Uni. But, um, I was I maybe not as public I wasn't as public because there just wasn't the forum but the wonderful thing now is I can stand here and there may be people in the audience who um, you know think well you know there's um, thanks to people like Andrew Bolt that um, someone like myself shouldn't really be given the credibility of being um, Aboriginal but I wouldn't be doing it you know so I guess my scope these people have shaped who I am I, they've helped me understand myself. I am a product of this, you know, 1788 on um, social experiment, which people twilly call colonisation or settlement. <laughs> I think it was an invasion and then, a, um, you know, a whole process of social upheaval. Um, there are benefits and there are um, disastrous consequences. Um, but the great thing that's um, coming through for me in my own scholarship is that I actually even want to learn my own language again. And I don't mind if I've only got sort of 100 words to start with. I've helped people get their languages back with um, more than that. But I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm delighted and proud to be Aboriginal. And I think that these women have left us this legacy. Uh, I'm not taking the men out of the record at all. I just think that there's this a voice of strong women coming through that um, I, I hope that I'm part of that and that this whole university um, is engaging with that as well. The fact that it cares about having an Aboriginal uh, research position and a, a research strategy that um, I hope you will all contribute to, whether you're um, 
at the university or you're in Hurstville and suddenly discover you're on a kangaroo ground, that's great. You know, it's, it's a community project and we're, we are the community. So I guess, um, again, uh, kind of an answer, but um, um, I guess um, the main thing is that I've got the opportunity to be Aboriginal and to, but also to bring everything that this place and the Australian National University and other universities I've been at have given me as tools so that I can actually talk back to the system and talk back about who we are and what we are. And um, yeah, so does that help? Hello? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> rest. With a, what I have to say is a really typically generous encouragement which you started with of welcoming and, and uh, warming and you have also ended with as a invitation to all of us to participate mm. in these histories in reclaiming it's amazing knowledge that we're all part of and it's it is a very typically generous thing and thank you very much for talking and thank you for um, giving us all that oh, thanks Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.